our morning message. Lord, it is through the foolishness of preaching that the gospel is made known. And Lord, there's been a lot of preaching over the history of, of this church. And we praise you for that. We thank you, Lord, that that has been a real blessing for the preacher as well as those who have heard the sermon. And I pray, Father, that today that would also be true. That uh, opportunities, Lord, today to look into your word, to ponder it, to consider it, to reflect upon it, to apply it to our lives. We pray that this might be used by your spirit to point us to Christ, to make us more aware of how blessed we are in him, and to bring others into that blessing that they too might know the one who had the words of eternal life. So we ask your blessing on this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Lord willing, again, on this coming Friday, hopefully it doesn't snow, <clears throat> about 9.30 in the morning, a group of us, and you're welcome to join us if you'd like. We, again, want the more the merrier. Uh, we'll join at the historic church building here on Middle Country Road, and we're going to officially commemorate the 200th anniversary of this church's organization. Now, the handwritten minutes of a meeting that was held on March the 27th, 1815, are still, uh, ha we have a copy of those, and there in handwritten minutes we can read these words. A number of the inhabitants met and looked into consideration the state of religion and thought proper to form a church. That's our beginnings. That's what we go back to. That's the first record of people taking steps to organize this church. And obviously at that time they had no building to meet in. They had no pastor to lead them. The beginning of our church is really made up of ordinary citizens, common folk people who at that time lived here what was called West Middle Island, now called Lake Grove, of course, and they were burdened. They had, a, they had a desire to see a church formed in the place where they lived. And three years later, 1818, that group, of course, had grown somewhat, and they had invested much time and much resources to seeing that a building had been constructed by that time, a place where they could gather for weekly worship and for fellowship. And that building never contained any kind of ornate gold fixtures. It never contained stained glass windows. It never contained an elaborate altar. Just simple pews and simple windows and a simple pulpit. That humble group of believers kept meeting together on a regular basis. Eventually we have a record that they did celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And early on, a gentleman by the name of Elder Corwin, C-O-R-W-I-N, <clears throat> I don't know who he is, but Elder Corwin provided leadership to that small flock. And the records of those earliest days are quite limited. I've been looking, I've been trying to, to read them myself. I've not seen any of the original documents, although they may exist somewhere they're in safekeeping because I haven't seen them. I don't know. If you got them, please uh, show them to us. We'd like to see them. 
But there is one historic document. There is one artifact, original documents, that they may exist. Sorry, that is so important that we verify the fact that they were read, and they were read again, and they made a lasting impression on this small band of believers. We know that these group of, this group of people, it shaped and influenced them in profound ways. And as those earliest members, we know for sure, read the Scriptures, the Word of God. I took the time last a uh, couple of weeks ago to look at this particular pew Bible. I mean, not pew Bible, pulpit Bible. And uh, it doesn't fit in the pew, obviously. It's quite massive. It has been recovered. Uh, I was looking for any kind of notations or writings in it. And it has a copyright of 1796 or something, 98, something like that. It's quite old. Um, but the fact is that the Bible that they read is essentially the same Bible that you and I read, except probably for many of us, we don't read the King James Version anymore. But the Word of God that they proclaimed is the same Word of God that we are teaching and still proclaiming here in this church. And one of the chief reasons that this church continues on and that we are here today is because the Scriptures are still regarded as the Word of God which has supreme authority. They are the trustworthy and infallible revelation of God. And as we reflect on historic roots as a church, as we reflect on the significance of those roots and how that impacts and what it speaks to our present opportunities and our present challenges for ongoing gospel ministry, I want us to reflect this morning upon the central role of the Scriptures, the truth of God, as we pursue gospel ministry. So if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. John had read to us 2 Timothy, but this is 1 Timothy chapter 3. Pew Bible page uh, is not written down. Sorry, can't give it to you. You look up at the table contents and you'll find 1 Timothy. At the conclusion of that chapter, chapter 3, verse 14, we pick up this reading. Paul's writing to Timothy, his disciple, his mentor in the faith, who now is leading the church there in Ephesus. He says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. And in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I want us to consider this morning two important principles about the mission of our church as we faithfully endeavor to carry out truth-focused gospel ministry going forward. First of all, first principle is building on the truth. Building on the truth, the foundation of the gospel. You notice there in verse 15 that the Apostle Paul, interestingly enough, chose terminology in referring to the gospel ministry, analogy of gospel ministry in the local church. He used terminology that has to do with a building. He spoke of the pillar 
and the support or foundation of the truth. To support a building or to have a support in the building and a foundation, you always think of that which is on the ground floor, that which has been established and on, upon which everything else is constructed. And why would Paul then use this building analogy for the mission of the church when those believers at that time never met in a church building as such? They would meet in homes. So why is he referring to this idea of foundation or support and, 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 uh, and the idea of pillars? Well, I think that Paul had in mind here a particular building that would have been very familiar and well known to his readers there in Ephesus. Just like New York City is known for very famous buildings, and if I were to ask you, I'm sure many of you could rattle off a number of those buildings, but you know the most obvious ones are the Empire State Building, and now the new Freedom Tower, and the Chrysler Building, and on and on you could go. They are very significant. They are places that you could point them out and get your bearings based on where these things are located in the city. And they're certainly known to anybody who's familiar with the city. Well, just like those buildings are known to New Yorkers, and the tourists who come to see them. So in Ephesus, there was one distinct building that stood above the rest, which was in many ways uh, the most well-known building in that area of the world. It was called the Temple of Diana. It was one of the seven architectural wonders of the ancient world. It was built on a hilltop, and it was easily viewed by all the residents of Ephesus and all the tourists who gathered, they would clearly see it up on the hill. It was indeed a massive temple building. Archaeologists tell us that the base or the platform on which this huge building was constructed was larger than a football field. So take that for a moment and ponder that. We're talking about the ancient world now. Think about building a building that large on a hill. And of course, the pagan false religion of the temple centered around this legend about a god who somehow fell to earth on that particular location. And if the parenthesis here, if you really want to know the background of the story, sadly enough, in reality, it was really a meteorite, they believed, that had crashed in that area onto the ground and that their superstitious worship actually centered around this dense rock from space that could help them in no possible way. But that was the center and focus of this temple of Diana. And Paul reminds Timothy, he says, listen here, Timothy, you're in charge of leading this flock of believers there in Ephesus. He says, listen here, even though you're small in number, even though it doesn't seem as though you're very impressive against the backdrop of so much money that's flowing in and out of this particular temple is Thousands and thousands of tourists would come and spend their money and buy these little trinkets and all this stuff. And if you read more about that in the book of Acts, you realize that was a real thing that got Paul in a lot of trouble when he began uh, preaching the gospel in that town. But this provides a, he says, listen, even though the church is unimpressive in many ways, it nonetheless provides a platform, a massive platform for the truth in that spiritually needy city. Its role and its influence is profound compared against the backdrop of false teaching in this massive temple up on the hill. And so I want us to think through what that would mean for you and us as we think about our own church. We think about the fact that since the time 
that little humble building was built in 1818, what is the largest building that's built in the, in the close vicinity? Smith Haven Mall. That's the big, in a sense, worship temple <laughs> in this area. People live for what they own and what they possess because that gives them identity. It gives them a thrill. It gives them a sense of significance. And that's what many people's lives are built around in a materialistic culture. But what Paul would be saying to us today is no matter what century of our history, whether it be the 19th century, the 20th century, the 21st century, we can say honestly that the church, this church, is built upon and is still supported by the only reliable, authoritative, unshakable foundation. It is the Word of God. And the earliest doctrinal confession that I've been able to read, and I've, again, I've tried to do my homework here. I'm trying to read up on the sparse amount of history that's available. Again, if you've got something, let me have it. I want to read it. But I've been, I came across uh, a doctrinal confession. I, interesting what you read in these notes. It said that they agreed to revise the original statement of faith um, in about 1865. And, and then it says... And they studied it for a while, and then they published this new one, and I have a copy of that, and it took them 20 years. So sometimes you think things are moving slowly for us. Well, listen, 20 years to revise this little statement of faith, and this is what it says in their affirmation number two, article number two. The scriptures of the Old and New Testaments were given by inspiration of God and are the only perfect rule of religious faith and practice. Hallelujah. They understood it. They understood it and got it. This church never was and is not now the source of truth. We claim no modern prophets. We claim no messengers from God who claim to have received some kind of direct revelation from God. But isn't it interesting what has happened since the beginning of our church in 1815? A gentleman from New York made that bold claim as he's out looking for treasures and following some sort of strange magical stone he had and all kinds of other strange things. And in the early 1820s, Joseph Smith claims to have had a revelation from an angel Moroni ends up writing in the book and in, in being published in 1830, the Book of Mormon, and several other books, Doctrine of Covenants and Pearl of Great Price, leading into a whole movement among the Mormons of false teaching and false religion. And then some years later, the writings of Mary Baker Eddy, who founded the Christian Science Movement in the late 1860s and 1870s, who said things like, in, in writing the science and health and key to the, script, key to the scriptures, she claimed, of course, that her writings were just as valid as scripture. She says this, she called herself the revelator of truth for this age. And she wrote, I would blush to think of science and health with key to the scriptures as I have, as I have were it of human origin and were I apart from God its author, I was only a scribe. She claims that God is the one who wrote that through her. And various other people have come up through the days, through the ages, and claimed that they themselves are the author or the provider of truth and scripture from God. 
But our church is built upon the inspired writings of Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles and those associated with them. And the Apostle Peter affirmed in 2 Peter chapter 1 that no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And therefore the scriptures are God-breathed, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. They are not just inspirational writings, but they are a book, actually numerous books compiled into a book that is inspired and authored by God through human authors. And therefore, since this support or this foundation of truth is unchanged, our church therefore does not change according to the world's changing standards around us. This church continues to hold and adhere to biblical standards of sexual morality. We continue to hold to not a redefinition of marriage, but to the true understanding of marriage as modeled by Christ, who loved the church and gave himself for her. It's all part of the gospel. We cannot reinvent it all in order to accommodate our cultural standards and preferences. We therefore do not bend and flex and, and somehow accommodate changing uh, uh, studies and people's insights into having the societal standards for leadership, people who are just merely successful or, or various other trends that they have adopted in various churches. Our church rests on the clear, unchanging standards of the scriptures. And the church of Jesus Christ is called by Christ to uphold the word of God, not to invent it and not to alter it in any way. And so what is our greatest challenge? One of our greatest challenges is not to discover new or unique truth. It is to support the truth that has been entrusted to us. Turn in your Bibles to Jude, if you would, page 1411, the next to last book of the New Testament. If you find Revelation, just go backwards a little bit. Jude had intended to write a letter of encouragement and celebrating the wonders of the gospel, of the salvation they were enjoying. And as he took up his stylus and prepared to write it, he became deeply concerned about what was happening. And so he had to switch gears. And this is what he wrote, verse 3 of Jude. As followers of Christ, we are to heed this admonition. He says, contend for the faith. Faith there means the body of truth, the body of doctrine, the whole Christian faith. Contend for the faith, which was once for all <clears throat> handed down <clears throat> to the saints. Therefore, there's a sense in which we have to continually fight for the truth and push against those those forces that oftentimes are calling for accommodation to compromise. I found an interesting, noteworthy example of our church, which collectively yielded and together as a church family submitted to the authority of scriptures in a way that cost them something. It's a difficult decision to make, I'm sure. The year was 1948, 1949. Prior to that time, this church had been started as a, as a number of other churches in our area as a congregational church, although originally it had the Baptists here, it had, it had uh, congregationalists and it had Presbyterians in the original building. They were meeting together. 
Presbyterians went off to start another work. Baptists went off to start another work. Congregationalists remained here. And so there was an association of congregational churches that were all in fellowship with each other and uh, helping each other in various ways. And there came a point in 1948-49 in which there was a movement among those congregational churches to go in a direction to join forces with another denomination and to move in a direction that this church thought was going to lead and indeed was leading to compromise, biblically, biblical truth and being compromised. And therefore, the membership of this church voted to withdraw from the Suffolk County Association of Congregational Churches. And the members did so primarily out of their desire and their conviction that they not compromise in their doctrinal faithfulness. You say, well, okay, that's significant, but it's even more significant if you know the fuller story, which again was recounted in one of the historical writings that I've been reading. It was a costly decision because by breaking that association, they therefore no longer would receive any generous financial assistance that they had received prior many years over the years from this association of congregational churches. What are they saying? They're saying money is not what we're taking our stand on. We take our stand on the word of God and our faithfulness to the Christ of scriptures. Praise God. And so my prayer as I've thought about these things is that I go back to what Paul wrote to Timothy. If you turn a little further, if you still have your Timothy pages open there, you took at the passage that John read for us. I asked him to read those because I just have been so drawn to <clears throat> rethink what Paul's burden was in the day and age in which he lives and how I have that same burden in my own heart. 2 Timothy 3, he starts off by describing what the times are like. Difficult times in last days, people are lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does that describe modern day reality? Now, what do we say? What is our response if that is the nature of what is going on in, human, in the human population? What do we do? Go off into a corner somewhere? Try to keep ourselves unstained? Avoid interacting with such obvious wickedness and hearts that have turned against God? Well, look what he says. He's quite burdened, he says, because what's going on is there are people who are influencing people in that time, verses 6 and 7. And he says there are some people who are learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the what? The truth. What Paul's burden here is, as his last big uh, encouragement for his mentoree, Timothy, he says, listen, verse 8, there were people back in Moses' day, nothing new here, who opposed the truth. And then he keeps going and he says, listen, you're going to find some opposition, you're going to find some persecution, you're going to find yourself to be very unpopular as you push against what people are claiming, what they're teaching, what they're adopting. Then he says in verse 13, Evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. What does that indicate? They're not following the truth, and they're going to promote things that are not true. Here's the key. He switches and goes to positive exhortation in verse 14. You, however, continue in the things. What is he talking about? The things, the scriptures, 
the truths of the Scripture, the things that you have known and have learned, become convinced of. From childhood, you have known the sacred writings. There they are, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed. That is, it's God-exhaled. It comes from God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be what? Adequate. The only way we're going to find adequacy to deal with life in this world is to be anchored in the truth of God's Word. To know the truth of what Scripture teaches. Not what I think, not what you think, it's what the Scriptures teach. That's the important thing. And Paul is just emphasizing that. We've got to hear the Scriptures and they've got to be taught, they've got to be proclaimed. Verse 2 of chapter 4. He says, in light of all this, preach the word. Don't talk about your opinion. Don't talk about the trends of the culture. Speak about the word of God and proclaim it. And then look at verse 3. There will come a time when people in general will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. In our culture, they turn aside to Oprah, turn aside to Dr. Phil or whoever, or to the pastor of the largest church in America who says, this is your best life now. They'll turn aside to anybody who will tell them what they like to hear. The scriptures are not necessarily popular, but they're essential if you want to know the truth. I don't say that because I'm smart and I wrote them. I'm saying them because they're from God. That's God's claim and that's what the scriptures claim. And that's the evidence that we see in them. The more you read them, the more you're convinced of that. And so my prayer as I read through this thing, as I think about our rich history of our church, I'm praying that God will light a passion, a fiery passion in our hearts for, God, for not only God, but for his word that we would read it, that we would study it, that we would claim it, that we would believe it, that we would continually meditate upon it, memorize it, filling our minds with its truths so that you ponder it, you think about it, and it, it ends up becoming part of your prayers as you offer them to God. Romans 10 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes, what? By the word about Christ. If you say, I'm so weak in faith, or I've got people I'm concerned, I don't see any evidence of faith in them, what they need, my friends, is they need the Word, the Word of God. And I am so burdened for this next generation, the millennial generation. They are so mesmerized by their games, by their social media, by the nonstop 24-7 entertainment that's all around them. Many of them, so many of them, have never, ever read the Scriptures. They didn't have the blessed privilege I had as a child to hear the Scriptures read to me even before I could read. So I'm so deeply concerned about the whole idea of passing on truth to the next generation. But I do find hope. I do find encouragement. I do find it's not just coming up with fancy uh, clever ways of doing it. It just comes from faithfulness and for the truth to therefore grab our own hearts and have a desire to see it passed on to others around us. Came across again in a particular document that recorded the history of the church. 
this particular one was written in 1965. Uh, how many of you are around in 65? Okay, some of you are around. Okay, good. Uh, well, you've been around for a long time. All right, okay. Um, it said that in 1831, during a period of revival, that's fairly early on. I don't know what this revival looked like, but it said the Sunday school was formed. And then the next sentence is this. Deacon Gould wrote in his history, quote, there were no question books. There were no lesson helps in those days. But chapter after chapter from the Bible was committed to memory. That was their Sunday school. Wow. Wow. And interestingly enough, as I thumb through this old Bible, in the pages to the right, there are some very faint pencil writings, very hard to discern. I picked up a couple of names that looked like some of the old timers, Gould and Azariah and whoever, and it looked like they were mentioning chapters that they'd been memorizing of the scripture. And I say to myself, where does the burden to meet, sure, make sure that the scriptures are being handed down to the next generation. What does that look like in our church going forward? And I am praying and the elders are praying and we are asking God to raise up people who have a burden to be a part of a ministry, a, a, a weekly, during the week ministry, not just on the weekend here at church on Sunday, but a, a weekly ministry to children in our area, a midweek ministry. We can't run it all, but we're praying that God will raise up those people who will be trained and who will say, yes, I'm, I'm interested, I'm available, I'd like to see and be a part of something like that because that's been a very important part of our church history and one that needs to go forward. If you're interested, I hope that God will place it on your heart. Let us know. We'd like to talk to you further. Much more I could say about that. I want to go to point number two. He not only talked about the foundation, the platform, Number two, he talks about holding forth the truth, and that involves living out the gospel. Holding forth the truth, living out the gospel. If you'll notice back now, and I'm back now to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, you'll notice that Paul's statement about the church serving as a pillar of the truth. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Pillar of the truth. I am convinced that when he said that language, when he said those words, I'm sure that the bells, the lights are going off in the minds of his readers there particularly Timothy there in Ephesus. And what are they thinking about? The most famous building in that area, up on the hill, happens to be the what? Temple of Diana. And guess what? This huge building, archaeologists tell us, proudly displayed, not 40, not 60, not 80, 127 pillars, columns. Count them, 127 the huge building had these columns, and each one of those columns was over 60 feet tall. Again, think of the size. Think of the ability to try to put something like that together back before they had cranes. Each of those pillars had been donated by different kings. Each one was overlaid in gold. Each one was embedded with costly jewels. Must have been quite impressive when the sun was shining on it. Each of these impressive columns served as a tribute to the various kings who donated them. They also obviously served to hold aloft this massive roof of this gigantic building that was drawing attention 
to the popularity of this man-centered religion. And it was making that building visible for miles around. And people, therefore, were being drawn to it. The temple complex obviously was a tourist, very popular tourist spot. It was impossible to overlook this idolatrous teaching center. So Paul, in thinking of that, he turns the tables and he says, listen, you, you Ephesian people, you need to think of your way, of you, you Christians there in Ephesus, you need to think of your, a different way of these columns and insist that the believers there in this church, they are the ones who are holding up the truth. They are the ones who've got the truth elevated, held up high so that people can see it. They are putting on display the truth of the gospel. And the believers that Paul had in mind were not impressive members of royalty. They were not people super wealthy. They were not people who were uh, super educated. I'm sure some were educated, some were not. Some were slaves, some were free. Some were men, some were women. But they were ordinary Christians who were saved and transformed by an extraordinary God in his gospel. What about us? Do you think of us as columns, pillars of the truth? Sometimes we talk about the pillars of the church being old people who don't want to change and they like things always the same. Thank God for our senior saints in our church. I've been very blessed to know so many of them and still know so many of them. But as we think about the members of this church, we're not very impressive people. We don't have to be impressive people. But what we are called to be, what we're privileged to be, is that we are people who share in the beauty of Jesus Christ and the life-changing, eternal, living Word of God. And no wonder Paul was instructing Timothy years later to what? Preach the Word. Make sure that the Word is known and proclaimed. And so the church is making known and has the privilege to make known what God has revealed in his word. The church is to proclaim Christ. Christ who said, I am the truth, the way, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except by me. If you weren't here last Sunday, I encourage you to listen to that sermon online and, and get an idea of what we talked about in terms of our history and what Paul's concerned there to proclaim Christ. The church is sent forth as proclaimers and ambassadors of Christ's gospel to the various people around us, people who are different from us, people who aren't necessarily sharing in our culture, or don't have to share the same skin color, who are not people who have the same background and practices as we do. So much so that it involves people into every language group across this big globe of ours, all the races of the world, all the language groups. Why? Because we want them to be worshipers of Jesus. Not to be people who are still caught up in following a false system of belief, the false religions of the world. How's that going to happen? Well, as followers of Jesus Christ and members of His church here, we are granted the privilege of putting the truth of God on display in our everyday life, where we work, in the hallways of our schools, and yes, even in our families. Turn with me back to Philippians chapter 2, page 1397, Philippians 2. And notice this very interesting comment Paul makes about the influence of the holding up of the truth in the 
pagan culture of that time. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Oh, my. That, that, that is a call to abandon a lot of what we like to do, isn't it? We can sit here and complain about the world going to hell in a handbasket. Complain about our boss, complain about this, complain about that, complain about traffic and taxes and whatever. We complain about everything. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Stop arguing. Why? For the purpose that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. What's he saying? Paul's urging every follower of Christ to live a blameless life. That's not a perfect life. A life that's not going to bring uh, disgrace to the name of Christ. Not kind of, kind of a scandal in your life. But among the crooked, dishonest, morally compromised people around us, we could exhibit an attitude of gratitude. An attitude of contentment. I'm content with less. I don't have to have everything that the world's trying to sell me in order to live a fulfilled life. No, the gospel satisfies so many of my heart's longings is that I have Christ and so much more. Therefore, rather than being people who grumble about what we should be receiving, which is what the world does, I'm demanding my rights. I need this. I've got to have that. And they'll step all over you and run over you in order to get what they want because they're so committed to themselves. They feel like they deserve various things. Christians, on the other hand, they shine as bright lights against that dark backdrop of perversity and mostly selfishness, which is rampant in our culture. Everybody's living, at, living for number one. So Paul says, listen, if you live a godly, contented life, you're going to do what? You're going to hold the word of life, the word of truth that's going to be evident to everybody. They're going to see it. You're holding it up because you're living in a life that clearly has been impacted by the gospel. I'm not asking you to live a perfect life, because that's impossible. But it's a life where the truth has begun to affect us deeply on a heart level. And as we practice the truth of God's Word day by day, as we live our lives in light of... Uh, we bring light to the dark world around us. We're letting our light shine among the unchristian culture around us is one way to help others see what Christ is like and to put Him on display. How do we put Christ's truth on display to unbelievers? Well, we live out the gospel and we show patience toward them. We show concern for them. We try to take an interest in them. We pray for them. We pray with them. We ask good questions of them. We give them things to read and think about. And therefore, we engage them. And mostly along with that, we offer to them our good works. Matthew 5.16 May our good works be so clear that someday they'll see that there's something going on in these people. They don't react like everybody else. These people are motivated. They are uh, caught up in things that are not the same way as everybody else around me. And the only thing they can think of is there must be some God component to this. And someday we're hoping and praying that they'll come to worship and glorify the God that we love and serve. The way in which we show good works to our 
unsaved friends and neighbors and co-workers is that we serve other people. The truth will be held up by us if we are people who learn to submit to the governing authorities as unto God. It is those of us who learn to submit and obey our parents as unto the Lord. One way we put the truth on display is by doing good to all people. Not letting us react out of a sense of people who are pushing an agenda that's contrary to us. We can still be people who do good to them. There's nothing worse than Christians who show a hatred toward people and who condemn them and look down on them and speak of them in such awful ways, even though we strongly oppose what they stand for. It brings disgrace to the gospel. We are to be a people who do good to all people, to the weak, to the nobodies. See, Jesus does not put on display perfect people to carry out his truth. He uses people like you and me, people whose lives have been impacted by the spirit of truth as he applies the truth to our own lives, as he assures us that we are forgiven again and again and again, and that our new identity in Christ is what is now motivating us to live in new ways, not to impress people, but to live out the reality of who we are in Christ. The world sees the truth of the gospel lived out in our community life, so that what we do here as a church, sharing together, giving to each other in need, helping those in times of struggle, forgiving each other, living out the church covenant, this is a way in which we commend the gospel. We put it on display for people to see. We make it clear that we are not individual columns holding up the teaching of men, paying tribute to ourselves or some human benefactor, but we are giving tribute to the King of Kings, to the Lord of Lords who has redeemed us, He has bought us, and He is now making us in the image of Christ so that whatever beauty you see in us is really a reflection of the beauty of our great Savior. We're not impressive people. We're, trying, we're people who are broken, who are speaking of the most impressive one of all, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave Himself for us. We are a collection of columns holding up God's gospel truth lived out in the context of this humble group of imperfect believers. And if you read the church history, yes, there were a lot of imperfect people in our church history. You can read about it and just use your imagination. One final thing I want to say here, and then I'm going to draw this to a close. Holding up the word of life, to me, is most clearly, compellingly seen in certain situations of life. For example, if we as Christ followers, a pillar of the truth, holding up the truth, how we react to times of suffering speaks volumes much more loudly than you could possibly communicate if you're shouting on the corner. How you deal with pain and suffering and people who mistreat you and people who mock you and people who make fun of you and people who don't really care about how you getting what you ought rightfully should be receiving. How you deal with pain in terms of physical pain, how you deal with aging, how you deal with losses in your life, how you deal with injustices in your life speaks volumes about what? About the fact that our trust is in God. And that he will ultimately bring about justice. Gospel living is put on display in your married life. In how you deal with your spouse. 
how you deal with your family, how you live out the gospel in that context can be a wonderful opportunity to hold up the truth of who God is and put it on display for others to see the glories of the gospel lived out in people who are imperfect, but they are living out that gospel in the context of a family life. They pray together. They spend time together. They talk to each other. They don't just sit there and text each other at the dinner table. They actually get together. They spend time and invest in the relationships with each other. You know, gospel living also has a wonderful opportunity to hold up the truth of God's word. If you're a single person, many single people in today's world, they just, they use other people. They're, they're, they're hopeless and despairing. They have nothing to offer. But if you're following Christ and Christ says he can use you, you have great opportunities to serve him as a single person. You can use your life as a way of holding up the truth of who, what wonders truths are there in the gospel. Gospel living is put on display when you lose your job. All kinds of contexts. These are the opportunities when the truth says, Lord, use me in this situation. Give me grace. Give me strength. Make me thankful even times when I suffer. Those are opportunities when the gospel is clearly held up for many to see. And that's why we as a church, we don't preach the health and wealth gospel. That's nowhere to be found in the scriptures. We preach that it is indeed at times the will of God that we suffer. But the sufferings don't, can't be compared to what? To the glories that are yet to come. Why? Because Christ has suffered for us. Why? That he might break the chains of the curse of sin and give us an eternal hope and ultimately heal us and bring us into a new world, a new heaven, a new earth. I'm just getting started. Give me another 200 years. I'll finish the sermon. Let's pray. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, as we reflect today on the rich heritage that we have in this church, Lord, we thank you that we have had ancestors and forerunners and fellow believers, Lord, who have read the same scriptures that we read. They have prayed to the same God and Father our Lord, and through our Lord Jesus Christ. They've proclaimed the same gospel that we have received. Lord, we pray that you might help us to keep holding forth the word of life. Help us, Lord, to realize we are doing it no matter, no matter what. That's what we're holding forth. Some of us, Lord, are hiding it under a bushel. And I pray, Lord, you'd make us more bold. I pray that you'd make us more convicted about the lost people around us. I pray that you'd make us more loving. I pray that you'd make us more uh, passionate about your truth, more committed to being involved and making sure it's passed on to the next generation. I pray that you'd help those of us who are adults to make our godly influence to the younger ones around us making sure, Lord, they hear your word, they understand who you are based not on their own reflections, their own assumptions about you, but, Lord, that they are reading the word of God. They're studying the word of God. They're meditating on the word of God. Lord, may all of us, I pray, become students of your word. Create that thirst, that hunger in us, that we might know you through your word and therefore be used of you to have a powerful ministry to this area going forward. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.